Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Alright Joe, before we get into the men's side of March Madness, I think the biggest story that we have ongoing right now in any March Madness besides the women's side of it, and you had a big Elite Eight matchup between UConn, which of course is the perennial best program in women's college basketball, versus Baylor, which the last couple years has been the best women's college basketball program, won the last national championship you had in 2019, and it came down to a very controversial call. Uh, Baylor had one of their best players driving inside when they were down by one point, uh, Tiana Cunningham, and she gets – it looks like she gets fouled twice on the way up, and there's a no call, and UConn wins the game. Uh, Joe, what did you see in that one? Did you think that was a foul that was worthy of all the uproar that we're getting right now? I think it was clearly a foul. Yeah, I think the uproar was justifiable because you have a call or a no call in a key moment like that. You know, we know that all too well as Saints fans, the frustration that comes with that. And you see Baylor denied a trip to the Final Four as a result. So, yeah, I think that Ken Mulkey, the head coach for Baylor and the entire uh, team, that they absolutely had, you know, a justifiable reason to be upset. Yeah, Joe, I thought it was clearly a foul, too. I mean, you can look at still shots of it, and I'm going to post it um, on our fan page and on Twitter afterwards. She gets fouled in the head and in the arm at the same time. And then when you watch the video of it, she actually gets knocked to the ground. And there's very little, if any, contact with the ball on it. Now, it was funny. I showed it to my wife, who always thinks that basketball fouls are always uh, a little too loose and that they call fouls and everything. She's like, I thought that was all ball. It looks fine. <laughs> but I, I thought it was clearly a foul, and I thought it was definitely warranting of all the outrage. Although I did think it was funny, Joe, that LeBron James is one of the ones who posted online complaining about it being a foul. And if I were Baylor personally, there would be a long list of NBA players I would want to complain about a foul not being called before LeBron James because, let's be honest, everyone knows he's a flopper. Right, right. I saw that as well on Twitter. And then the other thing I found interesting was the reaction in postgame from Gino Ariema, the UConn head coach. I always find it fascinating when he talks about how difficult it is to win a game or win a championship or make it to the Final Four. And he was talking in, at the uh, press conference and saying that was such a hard win. You know, that was one of the hardest wins he's had. And he says that, but then it always seems like everything comes easy to the man. I mean, he has 11 national championships. And so him saying anything is hard, it's just kind of hard for me to, to um, embrace well, and I kind of thought that his comments about the officiating call there were kind of ridiculous, too. He basically said something like, well, you know, it was a close call. If it had been called the other way, I'd be the one complaining about it. And I was like, are you serious? You would be complaining about that being called a foul if it had gone the other way? I mean, personally, I think the classic thing you should have done on that would have been just to say, you know, uh, I'm not an official that made the call they did, and it was a close game, and I'm sure there were a lot of other things that would have decided that. Yeah, you know, something like that. That's probably the way I would have handled that. Yeah, yeah. But it kind of felt like a typical UConn, you know, women's basketball win. You know, they have had so much success over the years. You sometimes feel in those close moments like that, they just kind of get the benefit of the doubt. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they clearly get the benefit of the doubt. I mean, they are the bluest of the blue bloods when it comes to women's college basketball. And I felt they got a very favorable call on that because I've seen pretty obvious foul calls before, but that one, it doesn't get much easier than that one, in my opinion. Yeah, no doubt. And I'll say this, if I'm a Baylor women's basketball fan right now, I personally think you got hosed worse than Auburn did in the 2019 Final Four with the double dribble that wasn't called. So I think it was even worse than that. And we were really close, you know, to having both the men's and women's basketball teams at Baylor in the Final Four. That's right, Joe. The men's uh, basketball team right now, uh, one of the top two teams in America, has played excellent throughout this tournament. Uh, really, they haven't actually been tested. I mean, outside of, I think, Arkansas, every now and then in that game, dropping it down to about a six-point deficit, uh, Baylor's just looked so strong with their guard play from Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell. And, you know, just a really solid basketball team that seems like when they turn it on, uh, nobody can really hang with them. Yeah, they're really good. And they kind of have four guards that can all, you know, shoot the three. Um, I think they're one of the top three-point shooting teams in the nation by percentage, if not the best. And Davion Mitchell, I heard Jay Billis talk about it the other night. He's arguably the most important player on the team because even though Jared Butler is the leading scorer and kind of the experienced guy, Mitchell is such a versatile defender. And he's the one player that a lot of experts have circled is someone that can make a big big impact if they were to uh, defeat Gonzaga or win a national championship. Yeah, Mitchell's a great defender. I mean, you look at the effort that he puts out on the floor, and when uh, when he was out against Arkansas after he got in two fouls, that was when Arkansas kind of got back in the game. And he's really good at shutting down the best player that you have on the court, and his defense definitely makes him, I think, the most important player for Baylor. Yes, I think so, too. But, you know, uh, Joe, we're going to have a very interesting matchup between Houston and Baylor in the Final Four, and we'll talk about that when we get to our next segment where we're actually breaking down the games. Um, But, yeah, so far it's been pretty much a cakewalk for Baylor, and I've definitely been impressed with the way that they've just taken care of business and not really gotten pushed by anybody so far. Yeah, I mean, they, they've been very impressive. Uh, Villanova did make it tough for them in the first half of that game in the Sweet 16. But ever since then, it's pretty much been uh, smooth selling. And they didn't have as much trouble against Arkansas as I would have expected coming into the, into the game. No, I mean, they really they imposed their will against a very talented Arkansas team. Uh, Joe, sticking the Southwest Conference uh, in the old school days, we got another a former Southwest member in Houston making the Final Four for the first time since 1984 with Fi Slamma Jamma and Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon and Clyde the Glide Drexler. Just the best nicknames. I mean, in terms of a team with the greatest nickname in terms of their overall team and the players, you can't beat Fi Slamma Jamma from the early 80s with Houston. But it's kind of hard to believe, Joe, that what's such a story basketball program this is the first time we've all been to the Final Four in, since before you and I were born. That's right. It's been a minute. I've been a minute for a lot of these teams in the Final Four this year. And I was really happy for Houston because it hurt for me. I hurt with them three years ago when they lost in that buzzer beater to Jordan Poole in Michigan. They were really close to making it to the Sweet 16. Michigan goes on to the national championship game that year. 
And I really think that Kelvin Sampson and, and the uh, Houston team thought that easily could have been them the way they were playing that year. And this year they look really, really good. Uh, they beat Oregon State in the Elite Eight. And then before that, you know, they were able to knock off a Syracuse team that had kind of caught lightning in the bottle as uh, Jim Beheim coach teams often tend to do that in March with uh, Buddy Beheim, his son, uh, shooting from behind the arc. So credit Houston. They've got great guard play. And they actually remind me a lot of Baylor, as we'll talk about with the previews. Joe, what's really funny about Houston is um, I know some people in my bracket pool that had him in the Final Four. Not a lot of the big experts outside of Charles Barkley, I'll give him credit. He had Houston in the Final Four, had him there. But I think a, a big knock against them going into this is the fact that they have played the weakest competition out of any other team to make the Final Four. Uh, they're the only team in history to beat straight double-digit seeds to make the Final Four. Of course, it's a two-seed. They beat a 15-seed in, uh, in Cleveland State. Then they had to take on, uh, you know, an 11-seed in Syracuse. And then they had to take on a 10-seed in Rutgers that they beat, which was a close game where they got pushed. Then they beat the breaks off of 11-seed Syracuse. And then they had a large lead, 17 points, against 12th-seeded Oregon State in the Elite Eight. Oregon State came back and made it competitive and lost by six. So it'll be interesting to see with them taking on this great Baylor team um, if the fact that they played all these kind of lesser uh, double-digit seeds will have some effect with them not having played the best competition. Yeah, and it even goes also back to your point to the regular season. You know, Wichita State was probably the best team they played in the regular season, you know, that team wasn't as good as they have been as a program in years past. And so, you know, everybody talks about Gonzaga playing a soft conference schedule. I mean, really, uh, Houston has not been tested as much this year. So we'll find out a lot about them on Saturday night. Although one thing I will say about Houston is I love their rebounding ability and their defensive toughness. And athletically, there's not many teams that are, that are more athletic than them. You see the way – but they're able to get all kinds of offensive rebounds. Uh, they out-physical you. And I think they're doing a lot to improve the status of the AAC conference when it comes to basketball, which, frankly, I think probably should have gotten more teams in. You look at Memphis, they won the NIT tournament championship right now. They pushed Houston really tight twice. And I'm not sure why Penny Hardaway's bunch didn't make the NCAA tournament. Well, I think they actually lost to Houston on a buzzer beater at the end of the regular season. And ironically, that may have kind of knocked Memphis out of the, of the uh, NCAA tournament. Had they won that game, you know, I think that would have been big enough to catapult them into the big dance. That's right. But, Joe, very happy for Kelvin Sampson. I think he's a very accomplished coach and probably one of the bigger coaches out there to have not won a national championship so far. Um, but interestingly, only the second time he's been to the Final Four, as many tournament runs as he made, he went one time with Oklahoma back in 2006, and this will be the first Final Four appearance he's had since then. Yeah, all, all the coaches in the Final Four this year, I think uh, none of them have a national title, so that is the cool thing about this year. And, Joe, going on to the next coach who doesn't have a national title, another guy that's literally done everything except won a national championship and probably got hosed a couple years ago by some of these same officials we're talking about, that would be Mark Few. Uh, Gonzaga now, I mean, we're talking 20 years of them being a consistent contender in the NCAA tournament. Of course, they made the Final Four back in 2017 and lost that close game in North Carolina. Um, you know, it's funny. I, at this point, I liked Gonzaga from the very beginning. 
I feel like I'm a bit of a bandwagon fan, but I, I, I'm a long-standing bandwagon Gonzaga fan. Like the first time they came out and made the Elite Eight, I think in 2000, I was a fan of theirs, and I've always been one since then. And, and Joe, I've always tended to, in, in uh, my brackets, pick them to go too far. And this year when I saw that they had a team as legit as they are, I had no hesitance in picking them to win it all. And so far they've given me no reason to doubt my pick. I mean, they just look more and more dominant each game. And what they did against a very strong USC team, which believe it or not, the odds makers had it uh, at Gonzaga as less than a 10-point favorite in that, was absolutely astounding, especially with Kisbert not having his best game. But Drew Timmy picked up the uh, picked up the slack, and I mean, he played absolutely incredible in that game against USC the other night. Yeah, absolutely. I did not see that coming as well. I thought that USC actually had a chance to upset Gonzaga just with the size. I thought it was going to be a really close game. But Gonzaga just from start to finish dominated. They're just playing so well right now. The chemistry is just otherworldly, um, special really. And I think about how this program has evolved since, you know, you and I have followed them, you know, over the past two decades. And early on, you know, they had some really good players and they had a couple of Cinderella runs in the tournament. But I feel like what, what allowed them to turn the page and become a very consistent term, uh, team that could make deeper runs consistently in the tournament was when they started um, working with the uh, transfer market, um, with the transfer portal. And they brought in back in like 2013, Kyle Wilcher, the transfer from Kentucky, who was a former five-star recruit. And then a few years after that, they brought in Nigel Williams-Goss, who was a five-star recruit from Washington. And then suddenly, after getting in those two five-star transfers, you've seen the evolution of them no longer just getting transfers of that caliber, but now suddenly they're able to get those guys out of high school. And to me, that's been the big difference. Getting a Jalen Suggs or a Drew Timmy out of high school has just boosted um, their status. Well, yeah, Joe, they've always had that market where they could go down to Australia and get all these great players uh, from down under. Um, and, you know, you talked about their early teams. The first one they had outside of their initial Elite Eight run that got a number one seed that had a lot of uh, credibility and a lot of publicity before they went out there was the Adam Morrison-led team. The problem with the Adam Morrison team is that he was all they had and if you remember things about Adam Morrison, he was a very streaky player. When he went away, he really went away. And that team ultimately is a one seed, only made the Sweet 16. And then they never really could get you know, past it until they got to that 2017 team where they had just so many different players all across the board. And then I really think in retrospect, when you watch that game against North Carolina, they were the better team. But there was a lot of help from the Zebras in that one for, for the Blues, the Blue Bloods. And – you know, this year they're even stronger than that 2017 team. And it's just really, I mean, it's their offense is just a clinic. I mean, the ball moves everywhere. Uh, you know, they're always running. And then what blows me away, too, is you talk about how great their offense is, they're, people forget about their defense. I mean, their defense is tenacious. They get a lot of steals. Timmy, who's a big guy, is actually a great defensive player. And I mean, he was picking pocketing uh, USC all over the place. And that was where he was getting a lot of his points was off getting steals and fast breaks, which is not something you could think of of a guy that's side. Yes, I think that's one difference I see between the 2017 team and this team that gives them a better chance to win the whole thing. And that is 
they had some good guard play on that team. They had some really good big men, but their big men were not as mobile. Mm-hmm. Karnowski and Collins were not going to dribble the basketball. Timmy can post up like them, but he's more mobile. You know, he's a positionless player in this era of positionless basketball. And then also they're stronger on the perimeter at the small forward position. They have more size. They have more versatility. You know, they've had matchup problems before at the shooting guard and small forward position against some of these bigger teams. But now they've just got a slew of players like Andrew Nimhard. You know, Suggs is pretty big for a point guard. They've also got uh, Corey Kispert, 6'7". Um, you got um, Joel Ayayi is very versatile at 6'5". They've just got so many guys that can play, you know, multiple positions. And I think that additionally makes them really tough. And, Joe, uh, you were talking about the transfer portal. They got Nimhard out of Florida. So that was a big-time yeah. transfer from one of the best SEC programs we have to Gonzaga. Um, and then, you know, you're talking about uh, their outside guards that can do so much. I mean, Kinsberg's probably the best shooter in America. And then Suggs is just a constant matchup problem, who I got to think is probably a one-and-done, but they're getting everything they can out of him in this one season. Yeah, I just can't believe how relentless he plays sometimes. Like, he'll dive, you know, on the floor to make steals, even when it's like a, you know, a, a double-digit deficit or double-digit lead. But, Joe, I love the point that you made about that 2017 team with Karnowski and Collins, who were both great big men, but were limited in their mobility versus what you can see from Timmy, who goes all across the floor, makes steals, posts up from outside and just really brings another element from what they've had in the past on the inside. Yes, yes. The intriguing player, though, they don't play that I want to see how he does next year is Omar Ballo. Um, he's a seven-footer redshirt freshman. Remember that name. I think he's a guy that next year, if Timmy you know, goes pro, I think he could be one of the big stories next year, Omar Ballo. Well, one thing I got to give it up to Few is that he does a great job of getting those foreign players. And Ayayi is a great example of a French player who's a really tough guy who I thought might have been out of the tournament uh, at the beginning of that game, like he had injured his hip. But he came in and played some great basketball after that. And that's a really good sixth man that they have right there who can play on the inside and the outside. Yeah, they just have so many players that can beat you any given night. And, Joe, let's go to right now, speaking of so many players, let's go to the team that has the least amount of players who none of us thought would be here. And when you look at the jersey, it's a team that, of course, you would think they would be there. But in terms of their accomplishments this year and their overall abilities and talent, no one thought UCLA would make it to the Final Four this year. Uh, They were an 11 seed. They were one of the first four in, had to play in that play-in game. And, Joe, they got down by 13 points against Michigan State at halftime. In my bracket, I had the team from that, the winner of that game making the Sweet 16, but I thought it was going to be Sparty that did it. I did not think it was going to be UCLA. And Joe, I mean, ever since they got down by 13 points against Michigan, they've just been shocking people. They come back to, to beat Izzo in that game, and then they take on a very talented BYU team who probably was the best team that Gonzaga played consistently throughout the season. And then uh, after that, they go and they beat Nabiling Christian team, which we kind of expected that. That was kind of a you know an easy matchup there for for UCLA. But then they have to go in and take on Alabama and get the big victory. And then of course uh, Michigan, which we're going to talk about those games in a little bit more detail in a minute. And now we see UCLA as an 11 seed, 
team that had to come in from the play-in and Nick Cronin's second season making the Final Four. Yeah, I mean, if you take away the UCLA jersey, I mean, this is arguably one of the more shocking Final Four runs I've ever seen. I mean, if it wasn't UCLA, I think we'd be putting this on the you know same stratosphere of life. It's like a George Mason with just how crazy it is as an 11 seed. I mean, this team really did not have that many household names coming into the tournament. Outside of uh, Johnny Juzang, who's the Kentucky transfer, I don't think many people in America or outside, outside the Pac-12 knew any players on this team until like a week ago. I know I didn't. And so it's kind of like having to figure out who is this team, you know, amidst all these other teams that we've been talking about all year, like in Zach and Baylor. It's kind of the unknown commodity. And I'm not even sure at some point if Mick Cronin and his team really knows how they're pulling this off. They've kind of caught lightning in a bottle. But, I mean, it's just been really impressive, the teams they're knocking off. When they played Abilene Christian, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, they kind of got a pass. They got an easier draw there. And so, of course, they would make it to the Sweet 16. But it was at the point that they beat Alabama that it was suddenly a wake-up call for me. No, Joe, that was a huge wake-up call because, I mean, as we talked about with Hunter, this Alabama team is loaded, uh, very well-coached, talented, senior-laden. And this UCLA team with one star and not even like the biggest star in Johnny Juzang has made it all the way through this tournament. Uh, they have a tough point guard and entire Campbell. Um, but I mean, there's not really a whole lot of talent. And then you look at a guy like uh, Jaime Jaquez. That's a good guy on the inside who is versatile and can shoot outside, but not exactly a guy you're looking as a first round NBA talent. And that's what this team is. I mean, they sub in some dudes like Riley is, is a guy that controls the paint pretty well. But you're not talking about a UCLA team that has uh, Reggie Miller or Mabah Mute or any of these kind of stars on it. Uh, this is definitely a more workmanlike uh, UCLA team. But that's the way they win. I mean, they grind it out. They play great defense. And they make you make mistakes. And it's really impressive to see what Nick Cronin has done. I think his coaching stock has gone up exponentially. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people questioned that hire in Westwood, um, California, two years ago. But he is certainly silencing a lot of critics and getting himself right for a big extension very soon. All right, Joe, let's, let's go to that Alabama game. So, of course, this was a big Sweet 16 matchup. I think most Bama fans I talked to when they saw they were getting to take on an 11-seeded UCLA team that lost their last four games of the season in the Sweet 16, felt pretty confident about that matchup. And I probably would have, too, if I was an Alabama fan. There were a lot of things working in their favor. But UCLA just played outstanding defense in that game, and they weathered all of the Tide's runs. And then – Ultimately, what really got Alabama was the free throw shooting. And especially at the end, you saw with Alabama a chance to uh, take the lead, their best player, SEC Player of the Year, Herb Jones, who's a 73% free throw shooter, missed both of them. And ultimately, Alabama goes 11 of 25 from the free throw line and UCLA weathers what is an absolute incredible shot to tie it up by Alex Reese. Probably one of the best shots I've ever seen to tie a game up. And the resilience that UCLA showed to, to weather something like that 
and not have a better team go out and beat them in overtime, but instead just blitz the Crimson Tide in that overtime. That really impressed me. So it impressed me too. And one thing I wanted to focus on with UCLA on defense on that possession, I thought they made a colossal mistake to not guard the inbounds passer and just give them the free lane to throw it in to set up that three-point shot. Because I think otherwise, if they do that or if they foul Bama before they can shoot the three, I really felt like that overtime period could have been avoided. Um, but obviously it didn't end up hurting them. But I always feel like if you don't guard the inbounds passer, is the equivalent of giving a quarterback a free lane without a pass rush to throw the football. It's just a recipe for disaster. But, you know, Nick, what's up? No, good, good. Yeah, but but Mick Cronin, though, they weathered that storm. They dominated the overtime period. But it goes back to what you were saying, that um, atrocious free throw shooting for uh, Alabama really made the difference, the 14 points missed. And then also, I think, setting the tone early on, Herb Jones getting into uh, foul trouble in the first half and having to exit the game just a couple of minutes in, I think that threw off Alabama too. Yeah, Joe, and one thing too that uh, I've heard a lot of Alabama fans complain about in that game was that Josh Primo only logged 17 minutes. And he's probably their most athletic player and maybe the guy out of all the players on this team who ultimately had the best NBA career. And he was only in there for 17 minutes, and when he was in, he made a difference. So that might have been something too. But, yeah. you know, ultimately in that game, you make 11 to 25 free throws, you're generally going to lose. And and that's what it came down to. And, I mean, I think at the end of that game there, Herb Jones, like, missed four out of his last five free throws. And just a, such a sad thing to see from a guy who was the glue that really kept Alabama having a great season this year. Um and then, you know, I thought Alabama showed a lot of toughness, too, with Alex Reese, who had had a terrible game, hadn't made a single shot, making that shot from almost half court to tie it up. And just really it was a shocking result to see the way that UCLA came out and just beat them down in that overtime. Yeah, I thought Alabama would absolutely dominate the overtime after tying the game. At the end of the day, I felt really bad for the Alabama players and that coaching staff. I did not feel bad for the Alabama fan base, of course. <laughs> No, well, speaking of feeling bad, you know, UCLA does it the next game, too, when they take on Michigan. Uh, Michigan, of course, you know, really good feel-good story all season with Juwan Howard in his second season of the Fab Five fame, uh, taking a really talented team, making them a one seed. Uh, They get one of their best players, and Isaiah Livers hurt, but doesn't seem to slow him down at all. And they get in this game, and their offense gets absolutely uh, gridlocked by this UCLA defense. And all game long, I mean, they they can't really score, and they have their own free throw troubles. I think they shoot only like 54% in that game from the stripe. And what really shocks me about that game is the end to it. I mean, UCLA gave Michigan so many shots to win that game at the end. I mean, they had a great look from three points with about eight seconds left. Uh, uh, Franz Wagner has a pretty good putback opportunity that he missed. And then after all that, with .5 seconds left, that's a pretty good shot. I mean, that's about as good a shot as you can get with a half a second left, and they missed that one too. And I was really surprised there, only down by two, that they went for the win and didn't go inside to the big man because they had the size advantage inside. And I thought that with Howard, you know, being an NBA guy and a former NBA assistant coach, 
he might be able to draw up a play, you know, inside for the big men to tip it into the, the basket with point five to go because they always execute that so much better on the NBA level compared to college usually. But they didn't. They went for the win and they missed. And I thought that, you know, although I give a lot of credit to Howard for his coaching prowess the last couple of years and all tournament, that Elite Eight game last night to me was not uh, his best coaching moment. No, I agree, Joe. I thought that was a poor uh, choice as well. You have Juzang, who's put up 28 points and absolutely had basically the only reason you saw him was that even in that game, misses one of the free throws right there. And you have this opportunity where you're only down by two points. You have a size advantage inside. I don't know why they didn't just throw it into Hunter Dickinson when they had 10 seconds right there and let him get fouled. And, you know, yes. even if he only makes one of them, you still get the chance to foul him and then get it back and maybe take a three-point shot then. So I thought that was kind of questionable too. But but whatever it is, I mean, this UCLA team, they had to go to OT to beat uh, Sparty. They had to go to OT to beat Alabama. They weathered all these shots at the end against uh, Michigan. And now you're looking at a team that has beaten a two seed, a one seed, and probably the best 11 seed. And now they're sitting there in the uh, the final four with a chance to take on the mighty Gonzaga Bulldogs. Yeah, I still can't believe it, but we'll see what they're made of on Saturday. That's right. And, Joe, when we come back, we're going to talk about their coach and some of the other coaches for Coach of the Year and preview the final four matchups. I want to thank everybody for listening. Catch us every 8, 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights on Facebook Live. You can catch all of our old episodes, which are uploaded on Spotify and are also available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts. And you can like our fan page, the Dan and Joe Sports Show fan page, as well as our Twitter at DJ Sports Show. And as always, I'm Dan. I'm Joe.